Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out again this evening on what has turned out to be uh, kind of a dreary afternoon. Hopefully you had a chance for some rest this afternoon and a chance to get back. One thing I was, we were making a comment back when we were praying a few moments ago that I'm very thankful that it's warm and uh, that it's rain. You know, it could be we're under a winter storm warning until, or watch or whatever that is, uh, until uh, Tuesday morning early, and I'm thinking, I'm glad we're on this side. I guess the Lakeshore is supposed to get uh, some ice and stuff, but uh, it's just rain for us, and praise the Lord for that, so I'm very thankful for that. Take your Bibles, if you will, tonight. We're going to begin in the Gospel of Luke, although we will be jumping around a few places following the angelic testimonies, and so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 to begin with. Now there's a risk, and I'm going to tell you the risk, and I'm going to apologize on the forefront of that risk. I do not intend uh, to be a Christmas Scrooge. Uh, Some of the things that we will be dealing with tonight, we're going to be getting into some of these that begin to attack some of our traditions. And we want the Word of God to speak, and tonight we're going to really get into one concerning the angelic beings that uh, we just sang about, actually, and I'm going to invite you to understand maybe from their perspective uh, the Christmas narrative. In doing so, we're going to begin to see maybe a side we don't contemplate in our songs. It's nothing wrong. I don't think that there's any heretical information. It's not anything like that, but it is something that we should see the other side of. There's two sides uh, to the angelic message And we want to be those who observe at least both sides of those so that we're faithful to understanding why the angels were involved. And so it's not my intention. If I destroy your Christmas traditions, I'm sorry, but not sorry. Uh, Mike said something like that. Mike Ross said something like that this morning, and he got away with it. So I'm trying that too. Um, Sorry, not sorry, kind of. I want the Word of God to be that which we believe and we hold dearly. And this is one of those areas Take yourself out of this room for just a moment and think through your image of an angel. Who crafts your image of an angel? Hopefully you have a biblical view of an angel, but typically we have this cutesy little angel that's not wearing very many clothes and he's carrying a bow. Or we have an angel, yeah, cherub, and uh, otherwise we have this view of uh, an an angel that's strumming, kind of like the old uh, Looney Tunes version of an angel, strumming on a cloud, uh, the harp. Uh, Scripture knows nothing of those kinds of angels. And so tonight we must understand that as we get into this journey to Christmas and we begin to view things from the angelic perspective, that we have to have a different perspective. We must understand who the angels are and why they showed up during the Christmas narrative multiple times, which we're going to review those times tonight. We're going to leave one potentially out. Uh, I'm I'm still studying this one. It's kind of a new idea for me, Uh, and I don't know that Scripture has a lot to say on one way or the other. That's why I'm not going to quite go there, but there's questions as to what the star was, and some say that is potentially an angelic being, Uh, possibly. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, I know that there's uh, astronomical information that we would say there's certain stars that showed up at the right time and then they showed up again and point to the Magi. Whatever that was, Scripture doesn't give us those details. So that's one potential elements of the angelic beings serving during the time of the Christmas narrative that we're not going to cover tonight because we just don't know. But we are going to get into some of these others. And in order to do that, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between Luke and Matthew primarily. Um, but we'll make some other references as well and maybe go out to another couple places, specifically as we get towards the end, First John. And so we're going to see some of this all unfold for us tonight. But I'm going to remove, dispel, or destroy, you choose which one it is, these ideas of the cultural angels We must get rid of how the culture defines angels and understand who they really are. These are fearsome beings who have tremendous authority and tremendous power, and they are currently at war with Satan's minions. And so we recognize already, I'm giving away a little bit of where we're going tonight. Uh, We're going to see these beings who are going to be assembled as a military by the time we are done. 
And so as we do that, we're going to need the Lord's blessing because clearly we have much to learn about the angelic realm. We don't know very much, just a few details of what Scripture gives to us, and we want to stay in those details and put together as much as we possibly can through the Christmas narrative. So, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to do that. That's our goal. That's our purpose. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word tonight. Father, we are thankful for the angelic beings that are faithful in serving You, that have been faithful and diligent throughout the centuries of human history to serve you faithfully, diligently, and well. We recognize that their service involves um, the battles over the hearts of nations, and especially at this time where the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, and the ministry of Christ bring all of this to the surface. Lord, there's so much we don't know, and your word is silent on, and so we pray that tonight we'd be able to walk this fine line of learning what your word does say, applying that, and applying it then to the Christmas narrative that we'd walk away from here, not with a fuzzy, warm kind of Christmas feeling, but the secure in Christ, everlasting Christmas understanding. Lord, we are those who need far more in our world today than just this fuzzy, warm kind of feelings so I pray that as we dig into the text tonight, that we would do so with a diligence, that we would return here throughout the week, that your name would be glorified as we study here, not just now, but in the future as well, as we seek to do what we set out to do this morning. And as Mary had pondered and treasured these things in her heart, I pray that we would do the same and that we would apply them diligently in the years and months to come. And we ask your blessing upon our, your, our time and your word tonight. We pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that it would be for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, as we move in, we're moving into the angel hosts. Uh, this word host is going to become important, so uh, make sure you uh, somehow highlight that, circle that, underline that, angel hosts. That is going to become very critical for our study tonight. But as we get in, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to navigate rapidly each one of the occurrences of the angelic appearances throughout the birth narrative of Christ. And so there's a number of them that we're going to see, and they're going to end about two and a half years or so after the birth of Christ with the last angelic appearing before the adulthood of Christ. And so as we do that, we've got a lot of ground to cover back and forth to Matthew, but we're going to try to stay in Luke as much as possible as well. And so we're in Luke chapter 1, and this is the angelic announcement at the time of the birth, oops, I'm moving ahead, birth of John. And so Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20, and I'm going to narrow in on that. We're in, we've already worked our way through this. We did last Sunday. And so as we understand this, we recognize that Zechariah is serving the Lord. He's in the temple. He's offering the incense. He has gone into the Holy of Holies. And he has been confronted with Gabriel uh, there. Now, let's move ahead to verse 13 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your, prayers, or your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. We're going to pick up 19 and 20 before we're done with Luke 1 here. The angel's announcement, announcements, I should say, through the Christmas narratives arrive always at just the right time. Have you noticed that? There's, there's a few things we're pulling out of these narratives. One, the timing. We want to know when the angels arrived and how that was fit into God's timeline. Here, Zechariah is offering sacrifice. He's alone, but he's in the Holy of Holies. And at that exact moment, he would not have been in this Holy of Holies more than about 30 minutes to an hour. And just at that time, he meets the angel Gabriel. God's timing is not off. It also is intriguing to me because there is another occasion 
in the book of Daniel, where Daniel is praying in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's praying, and Gabriel has been dispatched from heaven to answer Daniel's prayers, but he is held back. He's kept a bay for a time because he is warring with one of Satan's minions. And then Michael comes, Michael the archangel comes, and frees up Gabriel to continue on. What's interesting is we're going to see an increase of angelic influence, angelic presence during the time of the birth of Christ and then through the end of the resurrection of Christ. So there is a lot more demonic activity, there's a lot more angelic activity during this period of time on earth. And more of it is apparent to those who are observing. And so as these two sides are warring with one another, we should begin to recognize that this is a battlefield that is being played out. But Gabriel arrives, not delayed, but exactly on time. And that will tell us a lot about what God intends to do and will do with the angelic realm and the satanic realm. God will not be thwarted. His plans will not be changed, no matter what Satan tries to do. And as we begin to unfold this, we recognize, as we briefly consider the interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel, and we did a little bit more last week, we want to step out a little bit from where we studied it last week. Because last week we looked a little bit from the side of Zechariah, and really more from the side of the observer. These were the details that happened. We wanted to see and glean some information from the text and begin to understand all of the details as they unfolded that way. So we kind of observed it. We were standing on the outside watching it. We weren't in Zachariah's sandals. We were kind of as those who got a sneak peek of the fly-on-the-wall perspective. Today I want us to take the perspective, or at least see these events from the perspective of Gabriel. What is going on? And so we're going to highlight some of these things. We're going to think it through a little bit from the side of the angels, not just in this occasion, but in the other ones that we will look at as well. In order to start that, notice Gabriel's announcements, and we're going to highlight a few portions of it. He says, first, do not be afraid, for your prayers have been answered. For the angel, imagine what this meant. That one simple phrase. Because he had clearly understood, Amos 8, that there would be a famine. He clearly understood going back because he was the one who communicated it to Daniel, some of the prophetic events that would take place as well. Certainly not with all-knowing, angels are not all-knowing, but with more knowing than Daniel had and more knowing than Zechariah has because he has the course of human history. This angel, Gabriel, had watched the events, not just this one, but all of the events throughout human history, going all the way back to Satan's rebellion in Isaiah chapter 14, or recorded for us in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Key texts on the rebellion of Satan and the fall of a third of the angels, who now become satanic angels. And so, Gabriel is well aware of the battle that is there, and he's certainly been aware of the unfolding of humanity's sin. He was certainly aware of Adam and Eve's sin, and he was certainly aware of the instruction that would have been given to Eve of a child that would come from her, a man-child that would come from the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Now Gabriel is proclaiming the forerunner of that child. Can you imagine 6,000 years of history from the angelic perspective unfolding, being laid out? This angel stands before Zechariah as the next chapter of human history is opening. On this very cusp of the forerunner who would go before the Messiah. In verse 19 we dig in a little deeper. We didn't get into this text last week, but look into verse 19. And really, let's go back up to verse 18 because we answer one of those homework questions I left with you last week. Verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Still leaving a bit of homework there for you because 
Mary asks a similar question. We're going to look into Mary next week. So Mary asks a similar question, but she asks with different motives and a different purpose. Continuing on to verse 19, going back to Zechariah, the scripture says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Zechariah asks a question that reveals his doubt in the power of the Lord and the testimony of the angel. He says, how is this going to be? Because I'm old. This is not going to happen. I'm old. Elizabeth is old. We're not having children. I'm glad that you showed up, but uh, you're about 10 years too late. That is the tone in which Zechariah is speaking to the angel. Like, you're, you're too late. You've answered the prayers. You're here, but you were delayed. But the angel reminds him that the news that he has brought is good news, and that is the emphasis of the angelic message to him. This is good news because John is going to go before the Lord and prepare the way of the coming Messiah. And so the angelic message is to open up the famine and pour in the life flow of Christ into humanity into that next chapter and how redemption is going to be paid for. And that is where Gabriel is beginning to open that door with Zechariah. But this is not the only appearance of Gabriel. Let's continue on, and we're going to stay in Luke's gospel. We're going to go a little bit further into the chapter and look at the conception of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 37. And we're going to really focus on verses 30 through 33 because we're going to return here again next week. The conception of Jesus, the angel appears to Mary and gives her news of baby Jesus. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 30 and reading through verse 33. The scripture says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel appears to Mary and gives her good news. The good news is following up on all of the course of human history as it has been spelled out. And so again, the angel now, taking what had started in Zechariah, begins to unveil who this Messiah will be. And specifically, can you imagine this message from the perspective of the angels? We see John the Baptist from the perspective of the angels being the opening up, the ending of the famine, and the beginning of a new chapter. But the announcement of the baby Jesus to Mary contains far more. Did you catch where Gabriel said he served when he was with Zechariah? He said, I serve in the presence of God. Can you imagine Gabriel watching all of these events unfold? And we know from Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage, this passage of Christ taking on flesh, becoming as a bondservant so that he might die as the perfect lamb of God. Can you imagine that from the perspective of Gabriel? Think of the wonder, the splendor and the majesty of God on high. The angels cover their face with their wings, and they cover their feet with their wings, Isaiah says. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Gabriel comes to Mary and says, This God who is majestic beyond your comprehension, and more splendid than you could possibly imagine, has allowed himself to take on flesh and to come as a baby and marry, you're the one that has found favor with God. The angel is coming at this from a heavenly perspective. He's not coming at it from the perspective that you and I are coming at it from. The angel, in seeing all of the majesty, all of the splendor of the throne on high, is now telling Mary that there is good news. 
that the child that she will conceive and bear is the child who is the Son of God, who will rule on the throne of David forever. Again, Gabriel, remembering all of the promises that have happened throughout human history, focused back in on the Lord serving, living, and ruling from the throne of David. Israel is not skipped over after 400 silent years, and it's the angel who tells the people of Israel this truth. Christ will rule on the throne of David. But he also says that he is the son of the Most High, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we have God in the flesh. From the perspective of the angel, this is unimaginable. The unimaginable splendor and majesty is taking on the form of a created being. One that had rebelled against God. Gabriel and Michael and the other angels, unnamed, at least to us, have been in this battle since Satan's sin. And there's no redemption for the fallen angels. There's no redemption for Satan. They had a decision to make, and once made, that was their decision. You were either a holy angel or an unholy angel. No other decision could be made. No moving back and forth across that chasm that exists. And yet a lower form of created being, the majestic splendor of God on high, will permit himself to be veiled in the flesh, to be born of Mary. The angel also came, turn over, if you will, we're returning to Luke in a moment, but turn over to Matthew. There's a couple things we must observe here as we look into the angel's visits with Joseph. And there's a couple interesting ones I want to draw out, but look at the text here, beginning in verse 18. The scripture says, now, the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And when her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, one thing that draws my attention is the differences. Zechariah and Mary had Gabriel come to them. And it was not a dream, and they were active, and they were awake. But Joseph receives the angel in a dream. Not once, but twice. I don't know why. I don't think the text gives us why. It was kind of a fun side study that I was doing this week and one that I have to continue because I don't have answers. But he's the only one who receives the angel in a dream. Everyone else has received the angels, angel or angels in person. So Joseph is the only one who receives it this way. Nonetheless, we want to check in on the message. This is something we are also drawing out. The message, again, focuses on the splendor of majesty taking on flesh. Notice again what the angel says in verse 20. He says, but he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." We just studied in my systematic theology class this verse this morning because it focuses in on the work of the Spirit and the unity of the Trinity. It's right here. Jesus is fully God and yet will take on full humanity. This is the only time during the Christmas narrative that we see the angel coming in this way except until after 
uh, two and a half years has passed since the baby's birth, since Jesus' birth. And so it was during this time that the angel again takes focus on that which is conceived in Mary as having been of the Holy Spirit, and as before, salvation is the theme of the declaration. Why did Jesus come? He came to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel told Joseph. Joseph is even taken back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and reminded that this news is prophecy that had been given by the prophet hundreds of years earlier. And the evidence of this child, the evidence of God at work, is the name Emmanuel. It's God with us. And it's the angel that proclaims this to Joseph. So we have the emphasis of the appearance of the angel to Zechariah. We have the appearance of the angel to Mary. We have the appearance of the angel in a dream to Joseph. Now let's turn back to Luke chapter 2. And where we were this morning in our study, looking into the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and following. We studied this again this morning, as I said a moment ago. So let's skip ahead and we're going to look into verse 10. And the angel is speaking to the shepherds, and he said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm going to stop there for a moment as we begin to understand this. We're going to across into some of the hosts and the description of the hosts. But before we do that, I want us to draw out a few elements of what the angel tells to the shepherds. And again, the emphasis is on the salvation of sinful humanity. Three times to this point, we have the time to Zechariah, we have the time to Mary, and the time to Joseph. Three times before this, that has been the emphasis And again, it is the emphasis. The angel did not change his message. Christ came to be the Savior of the world. That's why he came. And the angel is the one who begins to proclaim this truth. And he does so with greater emphasis to the shepherds, who as we studied this morning were at the Tower of the Sheep, this Megdal Adar, this place that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 35, And again mentioned in Micah chapter 4 verse 8. And here, again, the angel appears there. Not in a large city. He doesn't appear to those in Jerusalem. He appears to a handful of shepherds at this place that had been spoken of in Micah 4 8. The tower of the sheep. The news that the angel brings is good news of great joy for all people. The angel proclaims the city of David as being the birthplace of the Savior. And he proclaims that the Savior is none other than Christ the Lord. There is clarity again, as has been emphasized over and over and over again by the angel, again to the three figures before and now to the shepherds. There is emphasis again on this truth that the majesty and the splendor of heaven the Savior would put aside while they put on the flesh of humanity. One author writes this. He says, Christ has come. His birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension bring joy to us all. If we want joy, we must have Christ. He came to give joy and peace to all people. If we have Christ, then we have joy. Without Christ, we cannot have joy, peace, or satisfaction. And the question is, do you have Christ? That message that the angel shared should be our message. Every time the angel spoke, he spoke of the coming Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. He would add to that that he is the King of Israel, that he would serve on the throne of David. 
He adds to that that he was from the city of David. And he tells the shepherds where to find the baby. But again, our emphasis is on the angels. And so let us now look a little bit into the celestial battle lines. We just saw them in the text, but we see them in a Western way in our text. I don't think that we view them from our Western world in the same way that the shepherds viewed them. And I know that we don't view them as the angel hosts themselves viewed that night. Let's see, let's dig into this. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The angel, presumably Gabriel, is joined in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. I'm going to stop there for just a moment because there is an emphasis on who the character of God is in this text, and I want to spend a few moments first looking at the heavenly hosts. This term for hosts, as the first angel's message closes, indicates that a grand number of other angelic beings joined the first angel. And we often equate what follows as a song of wonder and worship. We actually sang some of these words tonight, and we did this morning. And it may well be both a a singing and a blessing, or a song and a blessing to humanity, but there's also another side. And we should understand this other side. Again, one author writes this. He says, Our Christmas carols reflect the scene quite vividly. Sing choirs of angels. Sing in exaltation. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains. From angels bended near the earth to touch their harps of gold. We just sang that line just a few moments ago. As moving as these hymnal melodies are, the author continues, it is actually hard to find them embedded in the text of Luke 2. And he says, he's not just trying to destroy Christmas celebrations, he says, I assure you that I enjoy my family's gathering around the tree as much as anyone. And I'm not against those songs above, but I just want you to notice that there's another side to this. And the other side is that the hosts of heaven have gathered, not just for the joyous announcement, but for war. But for war. The word used for host is used exclusively in the New Testament and extra-biblical literature. It's not used a lot in Greek, but when it is used, it is used exclusively for armies. It is used in Mark chapter 5, verse 9. Mark chapter 5, verse 9 is where Jesus is casting out the demons from the demonic in uh, the Gersian, or out of the demonic of Gersia, and the demons there that Jesus speaks to, Jesus asks their name or his name, and he says, legions. That's the same word. That's the same word. The legions of Mark chapter 5 and the hosts of Luke chapter 2 are the same. Different sides, but the same for purposes of description. And it's important for us to understand. Now think of this setting. We see, and we're about to look into these words, peace on earth and goodwill to men. We see this as a silent night. We see this as a gentle lulling in the evening hours where it's calm and it's quiet. But the angels know of the battle that is raging. And when this announcement comes, it is a battle cry announcement. Let's read it again, thinking through this in the perspective of the hosts of heaven. Go back to verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. 
taking away our traditional perspectives and allowing what the angelic message is saying to permeate through the angelic understanding, this is a call to war. This is a battle cry. This glory to God in the highest is hail to the chief. We serve the master. And we are here for the master's purposes. This is a call to war. And I want you to understand, in addition to what the angels have said, what the Apostle John says about the purposes of Jesus in his coming to earth. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. We're coming back to Luke and then to Matthew one more time, but 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, verse 8. And listen to the end of this verse. And see if you can pick out the purposes for Christ's coming. First John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I know it's pretty subtle, but did you catch it? <laughs> it's not subtle at all. It's bold. It's right there. The stated very clearly, very clearly, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When we go back to Luke chapter 2, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And you're an angelic being who's been at war with the forces of Satan since the fall of Satan. And the birth of Christ means victory. The baby lying in a manger means you have won. The angels see victory not only over Satan and his forces, but over sin and death for humanity. This is a battle cry. It's a battle cry with both elements, both sides that are important to us. The side of the warmth of peace and goodwill, which we're going to talk about, and also the battle cry of the soldiers who are crying hail to the chief. It includes both. And so going back to Luke chapter 2, we begin to unfold the second half of verse 14. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now you'll notice if you have King James or New King James, it sounds a little different there. And I think the ESV has captured its meaning. The ESV and the NASB have captured its meaning better, and we're going to get there in just a moment. Because it's not good news for everyone. It is good news, and it's possibly for everyone, but there is a clause that's important, a phrase that's important. We'll get there in a moment. It is important as we understand that the hosts proclaim an amazing set of statements that are verbless. There's no verbs in the Greek language in these statements. They're all hail to the chief. They're all proclamations of victory having been won. They're all proclamations. They were a wish or a prayer, like the many of the salutations in the New Testament later, letters that would come later, May grace and peace be yours. That seems to be the way that the angels are saying. In, 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 in other words, they're saying, may you seize these opportunities, but this is true. May grace and peace be yours. There's strong evidence that the expression should be read as the Greek, or earlier Greek manuscripts read it and as the ESV translates it, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's an inclusion statement. This doesn't include everyone. It includes those with whom he is pleased. Those who would follow after the things of the Lord. Those who would accept the gift that the child would offer as a Passover lamb. This last word, pleased, that uh, we see here in this end of verse 14. It says, among those with whom he is pleased. This last word for pleased is 
referring to a divine good pleasure that rests with those who have accepted his leadership and rule over them. So we see both elements here. Those who have ceased fighting against him. Those that have joined the angelic side who are proclaiming hail to the chief. The peace of Luke 2.14 is not a generic prayer for the disarmament of the international relations. We often want to see it that way. I read a, a funny meme this past week, and I identify with it. If you know me very well, or even if you sat in one of my classes where I've kind of let my hair down a little bit more than maybe from the pulpit, I'm about to do it now, so that tells you where it's at. Um, but I, I'm not a fan of cats. Cats and I don't get along. Cats think they're God, and I don't like that. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of cats at all. Uh, but I've had a couple good cats, so it's not that I'm don't want anything to do with them. They just need to stay over there, and I'll stay over here. We're good. However, I saw a meme this past week that uh, kind of fit in uh, to this idea. And, of course, it's not true, but I kind of laughed at it nonetheless. It says, there can never be world peace as long as there are cats. Uh, Amen to that. (laughs) But in this text, there is never going to be world peace until Christ brings it. Christ is the one who brings it. This is not, there's going to be world peace. That is how it seems that the world has tried to take this text and say, ah, right here, there's going to be world peace. That's not what the angels proclaimed. The angels are not praying a prayer or proclaiming a statement of disarmament of international relations. They are praying that God's people may experience shalom, true peace, in their relationship with God, and they're telling them how. The good news of great joy is that this child is the Redeemer of the world. That this child is the Savior promised long ago, and He is the Passover Lamb. And in His death and in His resurrection, for those who believe in Christ as Savior, He gives them shalom. Peace. Lasting true peace. And so the declaration of the angels is a call to arms as they say, hail to the chief, and a call to those who are listening to say, hail to the chief. And both sides are true. Peace is yours when you know Christ as Savior. True, lasting shalom in your relationship with God. That peace is for those on whom his favor rests. But there's one more warning. And before we can leave, I, want, I left this one for this last glimpse so that just in case there was any doubt, in case you still have this idea of the fuzzier kind of Christmas, and that's not a bad thing. I think there is that side. But if you think there's only that side, let me give you one more argument that this is a celestial battlefield. Let's turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Over the life and the ministry of the Savior, we have this celestial battleground that is raging the entire time of the ministry of Christ and still raging today. But in Matthew chapter 2, look into the last angelic appearance during the Christmas narrative. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there till the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This last bit is the angel's warning. And again, as I said before, it only happens to Joseph. But Joseph is deprived of a face-to-face encounter with the angel. And instead, for the second time, he's visited by the angel in a dream. And the angel says, get up, leave Bethlehem, and go to Egypt. The angel appears one more time. 
and he, this time is not. It's the only time in the birth narrative that it's not for good news of great joy. This time, the enemy is at the door. The battle's raging. Herod is out to kill baby Jesus. Herod has his own reasons. Herod is not a good guy. If you've ever studied Herod the Great, you know that he was a guy who would kill his own family for the sake of power. And he did. He killed his own family for the sake of power. You will know if you study Herod the Great that he would do anything and everything that he possibly could to build as much authority and power to stand and to stay as king. You understand that Herod would build massive fortresses for himself. And especially at the end of his life, which he is at, or nearly at, at this present time, he was even more unhinged than he had been the rest of his life. And so Herod is willing to kill all children, two years old and younger, in the town of Bethlehem. This is the act of depravity, but it is Satan-infused depravity. There is a celestial battleground, and it is not the writers coming from Jerusalem who were listening intently and knew that the wise men had come to seek Jesus and coming, they had been told to go to Bethlehem because of Micah 5.2. You don't have anybody riding all night long to Bethlehem to warn Jesus. You have the angel warning Joseph because this is a celestial battleground. This battle has been raging since the first couple, Adam and Eve. And the angels know it. And the angels proclaim. And the angels point to the Savior who is good news of great joy, who brings true shalom in the relationship between the believer and the Savior, the believer and the Father. But they're also warning of the celestial battleground. Beloved, while it is good for us to sing the Christmas carols, and we must do that, let us also understand the depth that is behind the other side of them. Let us understand some of the perspective of why the angels said that Christ came to be good news of great joy for all who will believe. Let us seize those moments and proclaim those moments just as much as we do the carols. And let us seize and proclaim them with passion and enthusiasm. I love the Christmas season because I get to hear you all singing these Christmas carols and your voices are better they're good all the time, but they're better during the Christmas season. We are singing uh, with vibrancy these Christmas carols, and let us continue to do so, but let us also recognize with the same vibrancy that Christ came to be the Savior of the world, to destroy the works of the devil, that there is a celestial battleground that is going on around us, and let us be found faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ that is of great joy to all people, and especially those to whom he is well pleased. Let us be good evangelists this Christmas season and be found faithful in proclaiming these great and wonderful truths as the angels did in those few appearances. And then the angels disappeared from the scene largely. We're told that they're there throughout the ministry of Christ. We know that Christ could have called, and this is by Satan's testimony, that Christ could have called angels to save him if he had thrown himself off the pinnacle. We know that there's angels at various other places in the ministry of Christ. But this is where we see them present, ministering and active. And their message is good news of great joy and glory to God in the highest. Let us keep those as our mantras as well. Let's close in a word of prayer tonight. Lord, we are thankful that in the unseen battles that rage around us, that you protect your own. 
We are especially thankful, though, as we study the text that is before us tonight, the multiple texts that we have visited, that the message of the angels was not as sideline, those who are not involved in any other activities of humanity, but those who are actively engaged, who have observed the status of human depravity since the fall of Adam and Eve. We're told in other portions in Scripture that the angels marvel. They long to look into these elements of redemption, why Almighty God would take on the form of flesh to become like one of us, to die in our place, a death that we deserved, and to offer to us a free gift of salvation. Lord John tells us in 1 John that it was done to destroy the works of the devil. And so I pray that in the security, the relative security of our homes, of the place where we live, that we would in no way become naive, that we'd be aware, that we'd be diligent, and that we'd be faithful to proclaim as the angels did that Christ came to seek and save the lost, that he is the Savior of the world. Lord, we praise you that these wonderful truths have been completed and done. The work of them has been completed and done, and we are just the proclaimers, the messengers, just as the angels were. We praise you and thank you for the opportunity to share the greatest news that has ever been shared in all of human history the message that the angels proclaimed. May it be our message. And may your name be glorified in all that we do and say as we move through this season of celebration. May we do so with a boldness that is renewed and reinvigorated for the sake of the gospel as we proclaim the one whose excellencies we praise and glorify and exalt. And so therefore, Lord, it is all of these things that we seek to give you glory in. And we pray that we would have done so tonight in our worship together and will do so as we leave this place this week, that your name would be glorified and honored in all that we do and say. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.